The Apostle Paul stayed in Ephesus longer than anywhere else, three and a half years. As he was leaving, he told the Ephesians in Acts chapter 20, verse 27, I did not shrink back from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. I've been your pastor now for 18 years, and I'm not leaving, but that's longer than anywhere else that I've been. And I've always followed Paul's words to proclaim to you the whole counsel of God. So, whenever I preach on Sundays, I try to balance the type of literature that I'm preaching from that I share with you. The law, the first five books of the Bible, the writings, the prophets in the Old Testament, the Gospels in the New Testament, history, the epistles, apocalyptic literature in the New Testament. So I try to balance all of that on Sunday mornings and Wednesday nights. But there are 12 books of the Bible that I have not preached from here since I've been at First Baptist Church of Garland on Sunday mornings. I've taught from them on Wednesday nights, but I've not preached from 12 books on Sunday mornings. So over the course of the next several Sundays, I'm going to be preaching from some of those 12 books. And this morning, we're going to look at a small book from the wisdom literature of the, of the Old Testament, a book that's often misunderstood, a book full of symbolism and typology. The book is actually a love song about the courtship and the marriage and the love and the work of a young couple. It's an ideal picture of life and love and family and work, the beauty of marriage and the joy of, of a man and a woman in love. But is there a greater message? Let's see. Read with me, starting chapter 1, verse 16. Behold, you are beautiful, my beloved, truly delightful. Our couch is green. The beams of our house are cedar. Our rafters are pine. I am a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. As a lily among brambles, so is my love among the young women. As an apple tree among the trees of the forest, so is my beloved among the young men. With great delight I sat in his shadow, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. He brought me to the banqueting house, and his banner over me was love. Sustain me with raisins, refresh me with apples, for I am sick with love. His left hand is under my head. His right hand embraces me. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you do not or you stir not up or awaken love until it pleases. George Frederick Handel wrote 200 compositions, but one of those was his best the Messiah was his song of songs. Beethoven composed more than 200 compositions, but his song of songs was the Fifth Symphony. And King Solomon wrote more than 1,000 songs according to 1 Kings 4.32, 
But this that we're reading this morning is his, is his song of songs, his masterpiece. That's why it's called Song of Songs or Song of Solomon. There were three books in the Old Testament written by Solomon, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Songs. So I want us this morning to look at this small book in the wisdom literature, Song of Songs, and see what is God telling us through this book. So let's look. Letter A, first of all, about the song. In order to understand it, it's coming from a different era, a different genre. And so, so it, it's, it's interesting to look at, first of all, and, and try to figure out what is it saying. So first of all, let's look at Hebrew poetry. Hebrew poetry. Song of Solomon is a Hebrew love poem. All the poetry back then was sung, so possibly this was a song collection. In fact, some of your translations, most of them have he and she going back and forth. He will say this, she will say this to a woman and a man in love. He will say this, she will say this. Some of your translations say tenor, soprano, tenor, soprano, choir, tenor, soprano, because it was written as a song to be sung between a male lead and a female lead with a choir backing them up. Some believe Solomon's, uh, the Song of Solomon was a, was a concert piece created to be performed before an aristocratic audience at the palace of King Solomon. And the reason they believe that is because the Egyptians did that. The Egyptians, in the days just before Solomon, they would write love songs as concert pieces, and they would perform them before an aristocratic audience. And everybody would show up in their finery, and they would clap. The Song of Solomon was a little different. It was similar to the Egyptian love songs, but there was one major difference. The Egyptian love songs, was, they were lighthearted. They were a little flippant about a, a, a man and a woman in love. And they were pretty casual. And, and they thought it was fun and funny and they made light of it. And Song of Solomon does not do that. Song of Solomon is not lighthearted or flippant or casual about love. In fact, it's very profound and very theological and, and shows us the love that God has designed. And so, as we're reading this, we're reading a love poem of God to us. And there's nothing cheap or flippant about it. Song of Solomon does not cheapen love, it celebrates love. Our culture cheapens love. To our culture, love is merely a sexual act. Or different partners. Or changing out who you're with whenever you feel like it, if I'm not in love anymore. They're going from one relationship to another. I love you. No, now I love you. No, now I love you. No, now I love you. And in our culture, love is cheapened. 
And Song of Solomon doesn't do that. You see, in our culture, love is flippantly living together. Let's move in, save some money. We love each other. Let's move in. Living together without being married. Or sleeping together because we love each other. We cheapen it. Folks, our culture cheapens it. And it's not based on God's design. And what we have in the Song of Solomon is love being celebrated the way God designed it and the way that's real. Here's the plot. The plot of the book is simple. It's the courtship and the marriage of a young man and a young woman. She is a peasant. He is a king. She does not feel like she is worthy of his love because he's a king and he's in, in the palace. And she is just what the Bible calls a Shulamite woman. And so she looks up at him and says, I'm not worthy of the king in his palace. And I, I, who am I? I'm just a peasant girl. And he looks at her and says, you're more than a peasant girl of all the women in the kingdom. I choose you. It's a beautiful picture of God and you. Who are we to look at a king of glory and say, we don't deserve to be in your presence? And he looks down and says, of all the people in the world, I choose you. So I love you. And so the story takes place in the peasant's garden and in the king's palace. Who were they? Do we know them? Well, some Bible scholars believe that Solomon is writing a story about his dad, his dad and his last wife, King David and Abishag. There's not a lot of evidence for that, but let me tell you who most theologians feel like it is. Who's in this story? Most Bible scholars believe it's about Solomon, he's the king. And the woman is his first wife. Now you remember King Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. But most Bible scholars believe this is the love story between Solomon and his first wife. Now, Jewish tradition. Jewish tradition takes it one step further. And they say, here's what happened. The book of Song of Solomon is about David as a young king, or rather Solomon as a young king, and the Shulamite woman, and they, they fall in love, and they marry, and right after Song of Solomon closes as they marry, after Song of Solomon closes, she dies. And Solomon was grief-stricken. And in his grief, this is according to Jewish tradition, in his grief, he turned to all the other women, 700 different wives, and never could find the Shulamite woman. So he writes Ecclesiastes, vanity, all is meaningless, vain. Now we don't know, that's just Jewish tradition. Was this Solomon and his first wife? Here's the outline of the song, very simple. 
chapter 1 through chapter 3, verse 5, the bride, the, the young peasant girl, is looking up at the kingdom, starry-eyed, thinking about the king. And so the first three chapters, she's just like, oh, just, the king, he is he's amazing. How did, they ever, how did they meet? Most believe that the king had gone to the country one time and actually had met her. And so the first three chapters, she's starry-eyed looking up at the king in the castle. The second part, he proposes marriage to her. And she is thrilled and overjoyed. She accepts his marriage proposal, chapter 3, verse 6, through chapter 5, verse 1. And she looks forward to wedding day. And in the third part, chapter 5, verse 2, chapter 6, verse 3, she has a dream. And she dreams that she lost him. She had found the love of her life, and she had lost him. And at the end of the dream, she finds him again, and she's relieved. And in the last part, chapter 6, verse 4, chapter 8 through 14, the bride and the groom praise each other, they marry, and they enjoy the intimacy of marriage. Every Passover, Jews read the Song of Solomon. Why? Because in the Jewish mind, it was a picture of God being the king, and of all the nations, he chose them and brought them out of bondage and delivered them from Egypt. And so every Passover, Jews love to read the Song of Solomon because they are the young Shulamite woman. Jewish rabbis do not believe that a person should read the book of Ezekiel until they're 30 years old. Because there's too much imagery and too many visions, it's too frightening. Some rabbis feel the same about Song of Solomon. You should not read it until you're 30 years old, some Jewish rabbis say. And some say the book is right, a right-brained book because all five senses are employed and expressed. So now let's look at our text, letter B on your outline. Let's look at the passage I read just a moment ago. Chapter 1, verse 16 through chapter 2, verse 7. Hebrew love poetry is very difficult to read and very difficult to understand. I want to warn you first. Um, there's no sense of sequential flow or of time or of logic. And the phrases sound a little odd to us. We're reading that and we're going, that doesn't sound very much like a love song. So the phrases are very odd for, for one simple reason. Their culture and what they valued and our culture, what we value, were totally different. Theirs was an agricultural community, mostly barren land, hot and rocks. But whenever you find a garden or a vineyard with luscious fruit, it is, it's refreshing and it's exhilarating. So you see those references to fruit. References to the arrival of spring because the springtime brought rains and water and life to things. And you see references to the shepherding community and sheep because that's what they loved and what they knew. So you hear some references to that. So it sounds rather odd to us whenever they make those references. For example, the young man says to the young woman, your body is like a garden. We're thinking, that doesn't really do anything for us. Then he says, my love is like a city. She's like Jerusalem. Well, we wouldn't say, honey, I love you as much as New York. 
we wouldn't say that. It's odd to us. The, the king said, you're as beautiful, your hair is as beautiful as a flock of goats coming down from Mount Gilead. I don't recommend you saying that to your spouse, by the way. It just doesn't do it for us. But think about it. Agricultural community and a shepherding and a flock of goats from Mount Gilead would, would mean life and companionship. Honey, your, your teeth are as beautiful as shearing sheep. That doesn't sound real romantic. But to them it was elegant. It's beautiful. And to us it just kind of sounds odd. But listen to what they, what they say. They're going back and forth. He said this. She said this. No, you hang up first. No, you hang up first. No, you hang up first. No, I'm not hanging up till you hang up. He says some things and she says some things. Back and forth. Here we begin. He says, beautiful. My love, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves. And she responds, king, beautiful. Beautiful, my beloved. You are truly delightful. Our couch is green. Some of you had couches in the 1970s, probably had green couches as well. They're talking about your, your couch is green, our cedars, our, 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 our cedars, our, our, our rather, our house, our beams are cedar, our rafters are pine. It was a picture of tall, stately trees. Imagine you live among rocks and desert and sand and hot, and you come up on a forest, which is northern Israel, and you think, oh my goodness, their, their fruit is trees. And she responds, I am a rose of Sharon. I am a lily of the valley. Now, those of you who've been in church for quite a while, you've always thought the rose of Sharon or Sharon and the lily of the valley was Jesus. Maybe. But that's not what she's talking about. Sharon is a plain along the Mediterranean Sea of Israel. Whenever we go there, we land the first night in Tel Aviv get up the next morning, get in a bus, and we drive up the plain of Sharon. Beautiful. It's, you got olive trees, and you got flowers. Israel's one of the top flower producers for Europe. You got, you got it's beautiful. And she said, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a rose of Sharon, but the word she uses for rose there, it, it meant crocus plant. In other words, there were many of them. She's saying, I'm just... I'm just one little rose out here in a bunch of a lot of roses, and you pick me? I'm just a lily of the valley. There are many lilies all over the valley, and you pick me? And that's our story. Who are we among all the people of creation that God reached down and saved you? The king came down picked you. And he says, as a lily among brambles, who you are, you're not a lily of the valley, one among many. All I see are brambles, and you are the one lily that shines above them all. And I choose you. And she responds, well, you're an apple tree. 
You're an apple tree among the forest. Apple trees didn't grow naturally over there. They had to be brought in and planted. They were purposeful. And so you're going through the forest and you see tree after tree after tree. And all of a sudden, there's an apple tree with apples on it. And it says, King, you are the apple tree among the forest. The one God brought into my life. I sat in the shadow with great delight. His fruit was sweet to my taste. He brought me to the banqueting hall, and his banner over me was love. Probably the second most famous verse. His banner over me was love. We have a children's song about it. She said, sustain me with raisins. Refresh me with apples. I am sick for love. I remember a barren community where fruit was a blessing. You see it mentioned. His left hand was under my head. Right hand embraces me. It was a feeling of love and acceptance in an intimate relationship. And then she said, Pledge, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the does of the field and the gazelles of the field, do not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. In other words, don't let me, don't stop me from enjoying this. I want to be in love as long as I can. A picture of our response to God and what He's done in Christ. But what does this mean for us? Why did God choose a love song of Hebrew poetry that barely mentions His name one time? Does He put it in the Bible for us? Is there a deeper analogy? Is there another deeper illusion? Because, folks, this picture, full of story, between a young man and the king, is the picture of God's relationship with Israel and your relationship with Christ. It's a picture. God is designed for you and me to have an intimate relationship with Him. Now, let's look at some lessons and we'll close. Letter C on your outline, three lessons. Lesson number one, God has placed us in the context of relationships. God has placed us in the context of human relationships. We have a relationship with one another. Some of us have a relationship with a spouse. We as believers all have a relationship with other believers. And then we also as believers have a relationship with those outside the church who are non-believers. And we have, a, we have a relationship with each one of those. God never desired for us to live the Christian life as a hermit. Some people try. And some people think they're honoring God. I, I'm living by myself. I don't care much for people. God, it's just me and you. God never designed it to be just you and Him. He placed you in the context of other people around you. He placed you in a church. I know, I know, some people think, don't think they need church. 
Uh, Pastor, I'm good. I don't need to go to church. I feel close to God out here doing what I'm doing. I don't need to be in church. That's not the way God designed you, nor is it what he commanded you to do. He told you, he commanded you to be in a context of people, of other believers. Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. And then he placed us in the context of people outside the church. We can't just say, oh, they don't trust the Lord. They're liberal, all this other thing. We can't just say that and ignore them. We have relationships with them. We should have relationships with them. God has placed us in the context of relationships. In fact, Paul, in his letters in the New Testament, said, you need to get along with each other. And he called people by name. Yodia, Syntyche, you two women are not getting along. You need, to, you need to patch it up and get along with one another. And he placed us in the context of relationships. And we can't just dismiss that. I know, I know, you want to. But you can't. Here's the second lesson. Lesson number two. God outlines his will for marriage and relationships. In the book of Song of Solomon, God outlines his will for marriage and for relationships. And as I read through the book, I noticed two things. First thing I noticed was sex is limited to marriage. Let me say that again because statistics show that premarital sex is just as common among Christians as it is the lost. Let me say it again. Premarital sex is wrong. Sex is limited to marriage. You can't say, well, I, you know, I, we love each other. Just living together outside of marriage is wrong. If you're going to live together, get married. It's for a marriage relationship. You can't just say, well, whenever we love each other, that's when we'll know it's time to have, have sex. No. It's limited to the marriage relationship. It's the first thing you notice. Here's the second thing I noticed. Second thing I noticed was the Bible repeatedly says one man and one woman. One man, one woman. Doesn't say. Now, it happens to be one man and one woman in this case, but it could be two men or it could be two women. No, no. It's limited. God's design is one man and one woman. We try to redefine that. Our, our society needs this song because our culture tries to re redefine marriage and ask God to bless it. God, I'm going to do it a different way than you said, but I want you to bless it and bless my life. He won't. Because he's the one that set the design. I didn't. He did. All the way through the Song of Solomon, there are no questions about gender. Gender questions are for our culture. They're not in here. No pronouns. He... He said, okay, now I'll go by the pronoun he. And she goes, okay, I'll go by the pronoun she. They didn't have to cover that. God had a design. No homosexual relationships. It was one man and one woman. So you can't redefine what God has said. Here's a third lesson. 
Lesson number three from Song of Solomon, God desires to have an intimate relationship with you. God is the king, and he is the one that came down from the castle, became one of us in the person of Jesus Christ, walked this earth for 33 years, died on the cross, buried in the tomb, rose on the third day, ascended to heaven 40 days later, and he wants you to accept him. You must with your own heart, your own mind, your own speech, your own free will. Heavenly Father, you are the king and I cannot ascend to you, but I want to have a relationship with you and I want to go to heaven to be with you and, and have you as my Savior. And so you pray a prayer to receive Christ as yours and submit your life to him. And God wants to have that intimate relationship with you. So how is it? You and God, intimate or distant? Isn't it amazing how much we try to keep God at a distance? Maybe we're afraid of what he's going to ask. I don't know what we're afraid of, but we keep him at a distance. And God says, I love you. And we go, I like you. That's awkward, isn't it? So how is your relationship with Christ? Intimate or distant? All through Scripture, God is depicted as desiring intimacy with you. But we're the ones that say no. Chuck Swindoll said, little in this hurried age promotes intimacy with God. We resemble more a herd of cattle in a stampede than a flock of sheep beside green pastures and still waters. Sometimes we're just too hurried to be intimate with God. But that's the way of joy, and that's the way of peace. Early 1600s, France was in turmoil. There was unrest political struggles, war. But one shining light was born in 1611. Small French village, peasant parents, very, very poor, could hardly put food on the table, had a little boy that was born to them in 1611. They named him Nicholas. Nicholas Herman. Nicholas... Um, was not very attractive. In fact, by his own admission, some of his writings, he talked about how he was an ugly boy. He was clumsy, tripped over his own feet, fell constantly. People laughed at him. When he got old enough, he joined the army simply because it was a way to eat. They provided meals to the soldiers. So he signed up. And one winter, while he was a soldier in the French army, he, he saw a barren tree in the middle of a field, and he looked at it and kept looking at it thought, you know, in the springtime, that's going to have leaves on it, it's going to look bright, and he thought, you know, that, that looks like my life. He had heard about Jesus recently, and he said, that looks like my life, but God, I want you to bring the life to it, and so he submitted his life to Jesus at that point and said, just simply prayed, God, would you bring life to me like you bring life to this tree in the springtime? And Nicholas changed. 
He had a love relationship with God that went deep. And in fact, he, he got out of the military. He was actually injured and had to get out and, 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 and quit. And, but there's nothing for him to do. And so he went to the monastery. There was an old Carmelite monastery outside of Paris. And, and he joined the monastery, not as a monk, but as the custodian for the monks. So he would sweep the floors for them. He would repair their sandals for them. He would cook. He was the janitor for the monks because he couldn't be accepted as a monk. I asked him his name, and he said, my name is Lawrence. Lawrence of the Resurrection. And that's what they called him. But it didn't take long. They noticed something. They noticed that Lawrence had a closer walk with God than they did. They were the monks. They're the ones that spent hours praying and hours studying. And it seemed like Lawrence was closer to God than they were. He seemed to just enjoy him. And so it wasn't very long. The monks began going to Lawrence to ask him, what is your secret? How, how, why do you have such a quiet presence? And why do you have such pure joy? And, and how, what do you have I don't? And not just the monks, then the superiors start going to him. What do you have that we don't? He's the custodian and the cook. And then word about Lawrence got out even further. It got throughout the nation and other monasteries. And they just started calling him Brother Lawrence. That's all, just Brother Lawrence. And his story reached the Vatican. And Cardinal De Noailles sent an official to interview Brother Lawrence. What do you have that we don't? And he said, I don't give interviews. I'm just a custodian. And they said, would you, would you just give us inter four interviews? He agreed to four. And he told them a few things, but then after he died, they found he'd been keeping a diary. And he had written 16 letters in his diary as love songs to God. By the way, you can still get his letters. There's a book called Practicing the Presence of God. That's what he called it. There it is. My brother Lawrence, you can get it on Amazon, Christian book, a lot of different places. This book are the compiled 16 letters they found of Lawrence. But here's what he said. Listen to what he said. What's, what's the secret? How do you do it? Lawrence said, there's no such thing as common. There's no such thing as sacred and secular. It's all sacred. There's no such thing as mundane or routine. Everything I do every day is a love act for God. So when I bake a cake, I'm baking it because I love God. And then when I turn the cake so it doesn't burn, I'm turning the cake because I love God. And when I run errands, and when I scrub pots, and when I cook meals, and when I endure scorn, and when I pick up straw from the ground and I sweep your floors, I'm not doing it for you. I'm doing it out of love for God. Oh, but it's not the best part. Oh, wait, wait. That's not the best part. Then... 
I get to every day get on my knees and commune with him. And when I get up, I'm happier than a king. It's simple. Every day, I practice his presence. And every day he's with me. And every day I live, everything is for God. And he's there. Do you have that kind of relationship with God? It's what he desires. It's your love song to him. Father, I want to thank you today for your love for us and the ways you show that. And God, I just thank you for Jesus making it all possible. You're the king who came down to the, from the castle and saw us one among billions. But yet you spoke to our hearts and you chose us for an intimate relationship with you. God, thank you for including this book in here. But may it always be a reminder, not just of our love for one another, and how we're to guide our relationships. But Father, a guide for how we are to love you, the king, and the castle. Thank you for all that you've done. In Jesus' name I pray.